don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast, and I am your host, Hansa Bergwall, and we have a very special conversation for you today. I have our first historian we are having on to the podcast, and the conversation was so much fun. I want to invite a lot more historians to come on the show. Uh, but we're going to be talking to Hugh Ryan today uh, about his new book, actually launching today, the day this podcast comes out, called When Brooklyn Was Queer. And it's about, it's about 100 or plus years of history of Brooklyn, about a queer waterfront subculture centered in Brooklyn that inspired some of the best American art period, including Leaves of Grass, as well as uh, Moby Dick, I swear, had this culture in it in the beginning. Um, you know, Heart Crane, it had its own lingo, its own values. And because of some moral reformers and changes economically that happened in the late 50s and early 60s, it completely disappeared. You know, generations of culture and people and love, you know, just, just gone. And most people, including me, had no real idea it ever even existed until I read this book. So I wanted to talk to Hugh about it. And, and we talked about it, and it was a really interesting discussion about what it's like on the margins of society, how, uh, how people stick together, and, you know, all these histories of, like, full lives that uh, were lived and lost. So I thought it was a really great discussion. would love to hear from you about it. Fair warning, there are some frank discussions about sex in this episode. So um, if you don't want to hear that, then you don't have to, but uh, I think it's worth it. It's a, it's a really good episode. Without further ado, here we go. Welcome, Hugh Ryan. Hey, thank you for having me, Hansa. I really enjoyed your book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, which is a history of queer people in Brooklyn from... What what years did you cover again? We mostly cover uh, 1855 to 1966, so like 111 years of queer Brooklyn, but it actually goes all the way back to like 1827 and all the way up to right now. So... Somewhere between 150 and two, or 111 and 150 years. So what really struck me about the book is you, know, you covered over 100 years of what seems like it was like a vibrant queer subculture that lasted over a century and had certain values and commonalities and uh, that I recognized, you know, from reading Leaves of Grass, Walt Whitman, as well as honestly Moby Dick mm-hmm. and several other like major works of literature, but that, you know, has since because of stuff that happened in the 60s where it was persecuted and economic changes completely disappeared and most Americans never even knew it existed. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really sad. One of the things that really kicked off the book for me was the realization that I, I went to a library to get a book about the queer history of Brooklyn and I couldn't find anything. And I was so shocked. I thought for sure there had to be something. And then it really turned into a sort of moment of soul searching where I was like, what if there isn't history? What if for some reason Brooklyn is mostly devoid of queer history? Maybe because it's right next door to Manhattan where there was so much, you know? And, and so that was one of my first forays into this was the question of like, how did this information disappear once I realized it was there? Yeah, so how did you actually, you know, find these records, start digging into these characters and people and discovering what, what was happening here? 
It was a really organic process. I would start, I was working as a journalist and a curator working on queer historical shows to begin with. And so anytime I would do a show, if someone mentioned something related to Brooklyn, I would jot it down. Or if they mentioned something related to New York, I would think, well, let me see if there's a Brooklyn angle. Or if I was reading a book and it mentioned a queer person in Brooklyn, I would record that. And over about three years, I generated a list of information, things, points, Walt Whitman being one of them, uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yard being another, uh, bearded women at Coney Island was another. And I started to think, okay, there's there's some patterns here. The waterfront is really important in this history, so that was a big one. Uh, economics, being able to have a job was really important. And once I started to see those patterns, I would search for more things. So I would find the name of someone, and I would take that name, and I would go to the archives and look and see if I could find information about that person. And then maybe in doing that, I'd find out about three other people. So I would go back to researching the things I'd already looked at to see if those people came up somewhere. And then I would think, oh, maybe there's another archive that might have information related to this. Let me go look at that. And, and it just kept growing into this bigger and bigger web. That's really cool. One thing I was thinking about when I was reading your book is here's, you know, a hundred years of history, whole lives that, you know, lived and died. This is what was important to them. This was the whole culture. They had their own lingo, their own sort of ways of talking mm-hmm. and, and values perhaps expressed in Moby Dick as well as Leaves of Grass and Hard Crane. And, you know, then it it disappeared. And I was wondering, you chose to basically do the work of, you know, history making and bringing back, you know, descriptions to the best of your ability of who these people were, you know, that they aren't, don't belong in the garbage heap of history unremembered. But perhaps you could just describe for our listeners, like, what was special about this subculture? What were its Mm -hmm. values? Why are they worth remembering? Mm. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that uh, actually what I discovered right from the beginning that I I always kind of returned to again uh, was that this subculture was actually many subcultures always from the very start, that even the earliest um, groups that we can find, or at least that I could find along the Brooklyn waterfront, are really differentiated by things like race and gender. So the queer history actually uh, springs in multiple places and runs together. Um, the thread that you're talking about, the Walt Whitman, Hart Crane, uh, is one of the strongest threads in this history. It's one of the oldest threads in this history. And it's also one that continues for the longest period of time. Now, in part, that's because it's a thread that involves a lot of like folks like us, you know, cis, white men who we would today call gay, regardless of how they might have identified back then, uh, people who had a, a little bit more economic power, a little bit more social power, were able to create these lives and then continue these lives and then record these lives in ways that are visible. Uh, and the thing that I love about this particular culture, this this thread, the Walt Whitman, Hart Crane thread, is what they called their own romanticism, right? That they, because it starts in this time of Walt Whitman, uh, there is this epicness to it. There, Even Hart Crane, though he's a modernist, is reaching back to this uh, romantic ideal of America, this symbol, and Brooklyn, this symbol, the great Brooklyn Bridge. And I, I have to say that that really touched me personally. I definitely responded to that really well. Uh, and so that was really a beautiful thing to see. But another culture that I was also incredibly impressed by, uh, or, or one of the many you know cultures, was uh, this very small group of men that only appears in the history that I wrote at the very end, like 1950, 51, 52, 53. You get this group of mostly gay men of Puerto Rican descent at Coney Island. And they form this tiny little subculture within other subcultures. And it's 
only around for a couple of years before there's a major crackdown in Coney Island that kind of shuts down all the sexual libidinous freedom that Coney Island was known for. And yet it manages to survive and thrive and take all these people take care of each other. The people who describe it, there aren't very many, but they say it's one of the most mixed scenes they've ever seen, diverse racially, gender, class-wise, age. Uh, and so I just think that's really beautiful. This tiny little subculture within a subculture that's totally forgotten today and yet created a world for themselves for three kind of perfect years. Wow, that's that's really interesting. So... Yeah, I guess in a hundred years, you just find so many ways that it crops up and it happens. What what surprised you about you know finding the history of this group? Mm, everything surprised me, honestly. Like I came into this knowing very little, even though I had a degree in women's studies uh, in college, and I'm really interested in queer history, and I was working as a gay journalist. That was one of the things that shocked me so much, was just the amount of different history. The fact that there was so much history that I had to leave things out, a lot of things out, that was shocking to me. And then individual moments that were really surprising, like discovering that New York City, starting in the mid-1920s, was tracking men who were arrested for soliciting other men. Right? So that was a surprise. And then discovering that by the like early 1940s, they were hitting like thousands of arrests a year. At one point, they get up to like three, over 3,000 arrests a year, mostly of men in subway toilets trying to pick up other men. And so things like that just kept coming up. I was just shocked. I found a trans woman who very much understand, understood herself, sort of how we would today understand a trans woman, who was actively working as a street-level sex worker in Brooklyn in 1906. And when a doctor said to her, haven't you ever been arrested? What do the, the men think about you? She responded and said, I've never been arrested, and none of the boys mind. She was like, they don't care. Uh, and so that was just a shocking thing to realize, to imagine that there was a place in Brooklyn where a trans woman could work as a street-walking prostitute, have an active clientele of people who did not have a problem with her gender, her sex, her body, just shocked me. And she actually, this same doctor interviewed her from 1906 to 19, I think, 17, so like 10 years in which she was actively working, never being arrested, uh, and that, that says something kind of amazing and I think really kind of blew, blew my mind about this history. Yeah, there was almost this shadow, like libertine, like live your life, live and let live set of values on the waterfront that um, really was strong enough that people said with confidence what they were about and expected to be left alone. Yeah, I mean, the waterfront, you know, it comes with all of these problems, right? Because it is a working area, uh, and it is maybe as economically, it's generating a lot of money, but it's not necessarily a place you want to live. Uh, but with that comes potential, right? You get spaces that are really mixed use, lots of people going through them for lots of different reasons. They're lightly policed, they're cheap to live in, uh, they might be dirty, they might be, you know, dangerous. Uh, but in a lot of ways, that um, shadow provides space for lives to be lived. Yeah, and it sounded like a really important part of it was that at the waterfront, you know, there were jobs available who, to people who, you know, otherwise didn't have a lot of opportunity. Yeah, particularly in the, the oldest part of this history, the Victorian time, the 1800s, the waterfront provided things like, one, a job you could have away from your family, not near the place you grew up in. Uh, it provided a way to get away and maybe have a job that was all other men or all other women. Five jobs in particular kept coming up in this history. They're the things that I keep returning to as being a little bit more open to queer people or a little bit more interesting to queer people. And those were sailors, sex workers, 
artists, so writers, painters, uh, theater makers of some kinds, uh, entertainers, musicians, actors, drag queens, bearded women, and then female factory workers. So those were the five classes that just come up again and again and again. Wow. And one thing I really got from your book is just how much ideas about being different, you know, sexually or in gender-wise changed over this period. And it, it doesn't just go like more conservative the further you go back. In fact, the most conservative time was the most recent when it actually got so conservative it ended yeah. in the 50s and 60s, at least this Brooklyn waterfront culture. And it actually reminded me, you know, my grandmother died recently. And, but when we were younger, she used to tell me stories about her nurse who was uh, an African-American man who was a cross-dresser. And he would, when he was taking her around the city, dressed as a man, tell her about the gowns he wore at night. Wow, when was this? Uh, This was in the 1920s. That's amazing. So clearly this, you know, was happening, and it was integrated even in straight culture enough. You write in the book about how in the 20s it was a much more accepted part of culture. It was in film. It was in all these places. There were mixed bars where people would come across, you know, gender deviant performers and all these things. And I was just thinking, I'm like, oh yeah, that was like, you know, my grandmother told me this story and I always thought it was so weird, but here it is in the history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I sort of look at it as three very broad periods are covered in this book. The first period is the sort of middle of the Victorian era, the 1850s to the end of the Victorian era, beginning of the progressive era, era, so 1900. And that time, Uh, America mostly functions under a very different model of sexuality, what you might call a third sex model. Uh, So sexuality, the idea of homosexuality or heterosexuality doesn't really exist. Instead, your ability to perform your gender is the thing that marks you as queer or not queer. And who you have sex with might be considered a part of that ability to perform your gender, but it's not the defining characteristic the way it becomes later. So that's the first period. The second period, the time when you're talking about, then sort of 1920s, the early 1900s, you get the rise of this idea of sexuality. So we start to understand homosexuality as different from heterosexuality and being transgender is different from both of those things. It's, it's contested, you know, and people have to figure this out and it's not clear right away and it's argued about, but that's kind of what's happening in the early 1900s. Some people are totally okay with some parts of it and not okay with other parts. There's all this excitement, the pansy craze, which is when uh, effeminate gay men end up in a lot of movies, the end of the 1920s, early 1930s. America's trying to figure out how they feel about it. Then you get the post-war period, and that's where where everything changes. Uh, There's this kind of increase in homophobia in the 1930s, but the war prevents it a little bit, right? The war takes all of the concerns that are focused on anything else and refocuses them on the war. So homophobia doesn't quite grow in the same way that it did. And frankly, the army needs gays and lesbians to work. So they're not as eager to sort of come after them for all these reasons. But immediately after the war, everything changes. And we enter into the period that I grew up in and you grew up in, uh, this time of extreme homophobia. And part of what that time of extreme homophobia did, which I would put it like 45 through... Stonewall riots, and then you start to get an alleviation. I mean, I think we're in a new period now. Um, But part of what it did was it erased everything that came before and said that it was ahistorical. It said, this time period we live in now where gays, one, are a thing, and two, are an awful thing, and live in hiding and secrecy is all that there has ever been. And this is the sort of permanent truth. And so it erased the two periods that had come before it. And people like you and me grew up with this idea. I mean, I remember when I came out, I was told being gay was the lonely life. But that's very much an idea that comes about in the 50s and 60s. 
Yeah, so you spent a lot of time actually with the sort of moral reformers and the people who basically arrested, studied, raided the bars, tried to for decades to shut down and eventually succeeded in destroying this subculture uh, that you've revived with your work in history. And what keeps me up at night thinking about them is that to a last man and woman, all these people thought they were good people. They, were, they called themselves activists and reformers, and yet they were the worst. I mean, they were like, you know, like they were putting forward eugenics ideas that, you know, are some of the most, the worst ideas of the 20th century, leading to the most terrible bloodshed. And in this story, of course, they hurt a lot of innocent people just trying to live their lives. And I was wondering, you know, having spent so much time in the writings of these doctors and moral crusaders, like... You know what? What you think of them? Like, do you have any empathy for them? Do what, where? Where? Where do you I come down do. on these people? I love so many of them. I mean, they're awful too. And it's not just the the like anti-gay crusaders who I feel this way about. A lot of the early sort of broadly speaking gay activists uh, were themselves kind of awful people in their own ways. And I feel very complicated about all of it. Uh, one thing though that uh, kept coming back to me, or, or that it made me think about all the time, is that no matter what your larger moral or spiritual goal might be in, in, in your activism in the world, which, which all these people did. They had these larger moral goals about what they wanted to see happen. If that is not coupled with a concern for the material existence, both of the people you are trying to help and of the people who, in helping that group, you are in some ways hurting, whether that's by jailing them or saying that their ideas are wrong, you know, your, your enemies, for lack of a better word. If you don't care about everyone's material circumstances, you're going to end up doing a lot of hurt unintentional hurt that is not what you wanted to do. There are hurts that you might want to do that go along with that, but uh, the less you care about the material circumstances, the more you say, no, I'm going to save that person's soul, or I'm going to prevent them from being homosexual, or I'm going to you know, teach them a new way to live, but don't care about their bodies, it's just going to be awful. There's, in fact, a really terrible but wonderful quote. In the 1920s and 30s, New York City activists really wanted to get better public housing in place, uh, and eventually they did. But what they did, in part, to do that was to let the existing housing fall apart. They created a housing crisis in order to enact better housing rules. And one of the activists even says that through our, he says something along the lines of like, through our best intentions, we will have the best housing policies in the world while a third of our population sleeps on park benches because they had lost sight of actual people involved. The people were fungible. They were a rounding error in this great plan of making the city better, but those were real people. Yeah, and what was amazing about your work is you went into these sort of moral crusaders writings because they, you know, in a very biased way, studied some of these cases and would quote them and stuff like that. And that was your window into finding this persistent, hundreds year long culture that inspired what really, you know, objectively speaking, are some of the greatest works of American literature, which was so cool to like recognize Leaves of Grass and the values that are in that, like in the quotes in this book from these people who were streetwalkers or sailors or, you know, Coney Island performers. Yeah. I mean, the more I, I studied Leaves of Grass, the more impressed I was with it, because the more I saw that Walt Whitman was not just writing amazing poetry. He wasn't just writing about America and about Brooklyn and about the greatness of cities and the end of the Victorian era, though he was doing all of that. 
he was also writing down the words that the men of his circle used for each other, or, well, words that he suggested they use for each other. He was definitely into defining it for everybody. Uh, but he came up with camarados as a way to talk about other men, adhesiveness to discuss the love between men, the calamus flower as a, a token that you could exchange with another man. And this is written right into Leaves of Grass. At one point in one of the poems, he says, this book is a ship. I am setting it sail to find the people who understand it. And part of that is, of course, about modernism, but part of that's also about sexuality. I mean, it was a, a purposeful attempt to find others like him. I believe he put it as, uh, those who love the way I myself am capable of loving. Yeah, that was such a beautiful moment in the book. And you you heard that in that example of like that trans woman who said, you know, mostly the guys don't care. This is a place where I'm free to be me. And, you know, that is not what we think about our past in America, that we have this open-mindedness, that we have this sort of working class artistic sort of culture. And mm -hmm. that yet it's a big part of our history as Americans it lasted 100 years, and then it disappeared. Mm -hmm. And there are some parts of it that still exist, but I think we almost don't even know exactly how to see them anymore. Like one of the things that I, I think about a lot in doing this work uh, is in that late Victorian period, you know, you have variety acts, which eventually become vaudeville, and you have the birth of the American stage. And looking at it, you can see all these stereotypes, stereotypes that we still have with us today. Uh, the drunken Irish Paddy. Right? That's a character that you saw on the stage all the time, and the stage taught America that was the stereotype about Irish people. Uh, you'll see the same thing with the you know, stingy Jewish Yid. It was incredibly offensive, but it was a part of the American tapestry. And these variety shows taught America who Americans were in really simplified ways. And fairies are part of that. And gender bending is part of that. But for so long, we've just sort of looked at it as, oh, this was a thing that happened in, in theaters and no one really paid too much attention to it. Uh, but that was a real stereotype for a reason. It was teaching Americans that queerness exists. The fairy was a kind of person, just as much as the patty was, or the dandy was, or the darkie was. And it's not that these descriptions were great, but they show that we were part of the fabric of America from the very beginning. And yes, urbanization was to some degree necessary for people to see each other in larger groups, and particularly for people whose difference wasn't as visible, wasn't a gendered difference necessarily, but what we would call today a sexuality difference. You needed urbanization to find each other in, in greater numbers. But even pre-urbanization and in places that did not urbanize, these shows and newspaper reports about them took the idea of the queer person all around the country. Wow. So actually, let's actually like take a walk together through some of these places that were queer neighborhoods in this era. Like maybe we could start just with like the Brooklyn Navy Yard and Brooklyn Heights. Yeah. And then we can go to Coney Island and a few other fun places. And maybe you could just introduce us to a couple of your favorite characters from these haunts. Sure. I mean, the Brooklyn Navy Yard has been around and been a major force in Brooklyn since the early 1800s. Uh, it launched some of the first ironclad ships. It helped start the Naval Lyceum, which eventually becomes the Naval Academy. It's hugely important. And it means that there are all of these soldiers and sailors constantly coming through Brooklyn, as well as all these attendant industries, these jobs that are dirty, um, sometimes employ women, masculine women particularly, uh, and give in that way butches a possibility of having some work, particularly during the wars when there are not very many men. The Navy Yard is home to many, many women in civilian and war-related work. Uh, and so in that way, it's also really important for women and for lesbians. Um, but 
it has a queer history going back, you know, as, as far as we know. Everyone comes to Brooklyn to cruise for sailors, and they cruise for sailors in Brooklyn because the Brooklyn Navy Yard is here. And also, I mean, the Brooklyn waterfront is incredibly important as a shipping and mercantile destination, but the Navy Yard really makes a difference. So what's, what's cruising? I'm not sure that's something everyone understands. All right, so cruising is a very general term for looking for sex, you know? Often it would uh, include a very particular place. You know, there are places known as cruising grounds. Uh, and so the Brooklyn Navy Yard often gets referred to as one of those. They're also, it gets used interchangeably sometimes with people looking to pay for sex. Uh, that can sometimes be referred to as cruising too, particularly when you go back historically. It often comes with rituals of certain kinds, you know, ways of meeting each other's eye or tapping your foot or going to a certain stall or not going to a certain stall. Uh, and, and in fact, actually, Walt Whitman talks about that in Leaves of Grass, too. Hart Crane talks about it in The Bridge, right? There's cruising is built into a many of these epics. Uh, and so the Brooklyn Navy Yard provides all of these different things. It's jobs for queer sailors. It's queer sailors for other people. It's factory jobs for lesbians. Uh, sex workers, female sex workers, found many, 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 many partners around the Navy Yard. And I have a, a radio interview from the 80s with a doctor who worked with them during World War II, and she said many of them were lesbians. This was a job they could have, right? Sex work with men was just a job. And so the Navy Yard provides all of this for so many people, and it does it for centuries. Unfortunately, it closes in 1966. It's open again now as a sort of development space. They're doing all this really interesting light industry work, and it's, it's, there are lesbians working there again, which I think is really exciting, lesbian-owned companies. But from basically the early 1800s through 1966, it is an incredibly important source of queer history. Yeah, I actually work at a shared office space on Sand Street now, which is the epicenter of like this whole cruising ground. And I can tell you it's not that exciting today. Yeah, Sand Street <laughs> used to be the hottest street in Brooklyn, like the hottest street. They would write whole articles about how people would come from Manhattan in their limousines to drive down Sand Street to go to the one cabaret, Tony Square Bar, when the ships were in in the 1920s. And there were two drag queens there. Uh, Violet and Blossom, I think their names were, who were known for putting on elaborate campy shows. Wow, I want to go to that drag show. <laughs> I know, right? And also, like, when you, the people wrote about it, it was fascinating because these spaces uh, were queer. You know, a lot of queer people were in them and they were noticeably queer, right? You would go there thinking, I'm going to have queer experiences. But they weren't gay or lesbian in the same way. They were very mixed joints. There were a lot of people inside them who not only wouldn't necessarily have thought of themselves as gay, but probably didn't think about sexuality at all in the way we do now. You know, that they probably thought of themselves, even in the 1920s, a masculine working class man who had no exposure to psychology, right? Because all of this stuff comes to us from Freud in the 19 teens in the U.S., basically, uh, might go into one of these places, jerk off with another man, and not think it meant anything about who he was. And there are diaries. Lincoln Kirstein, the sort of cultural mocker who helps uh, create the New York City Ballet and, like, everything else in New York, writes in his diary about going there in the 1920s, and this sailor, he goes there with Sergei Eisenstein, the famous Russian director, and they go to a bunch of different gay bars. One's closed, one just got raided, and they finally sit down, and this sailor comes up to them, and he's like, I have a great idea. Let's all sit down, we'll whip out our dicks, we'll put a bunch of money on the table, we'll jerk off, and whoever comes first gets the pot of money. And all these guys from Manhattan, these like very fancy, you know, fancy gays, are like <gasps> clutching their pearls, and they basically run out the bar as soon as they can. Um, but it shows that a whole different world was existing there. So I've got a, a kind of a big, like, existential philosophical question for you is, you know, we tend to judge like that kind of overt sexualized behavior, even today to some degree. 
And yet, how did this culture that had such like libertine values and sort of rules, like how did it like come together and then create like some really beautiful American art, like Leaves of Grass, like Moby Dick, which I definitely see that culture in that book, uh, like Heart Crane, like just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, I think sex and the search for sex and this is also the search for love and community, right? You, you can't separate queer sex from queer community because you need more than one person. And once you have more than one person, then you're able to start talking about what separates you and what keeps you close and what's similar and what's different. And so I think this search propelled so many people. And these major works of art, like you're talking about, like uh, Leaves of Grass was definitely in part about commemorating what it meant to be gay and find, or gay, it wasn't gay, but you know, commemorating what it meant to be in a camarado and find adhesiveness and spreading that. Hart Crane's The Bridge, a large portion of that is about his lover, Emile Upfair. And he writes that he's trying to work sort of queer love into the American mythos and say there's room for us, you know, and that our experiences can be the metaphor through which everyone else touches love. That a homosexual love is just as much of interest to a straight audience, or should be, you know? And that, I think, is incredible. But you also get these other works of art that are way less known today, you know? And some of them are ephemeral and might not even be remembered as works of art. There's a woman named uh, Madame Tirza, it's uh, what she performs under. She's a Coney Island burlesque beauty. In 1940, I think, maybe a little bit before the war, she gets this idea to build this giant wine fountain, this 1,200-pound fountain that she's going to dance inside, and it pours wine all over her, and she evokes Terza, who's one of the muses, I believe, or maybe the main ads, I can't remember, but a, a figure from mythology because she sees herself as this beautiful goddess figure and she takes this performance all around the country. It's the war, so she becomes a licensed plumber so that she can repair the apparatus herself. She becomes a long haul trucker so that she can haul it around the country. She comes back to Coney Island. She helps hire other queer women. She herself is bisexual. One of her dancers says that many, many years later in an oral history. Uh, and she creates this incredible routine. It was so well known that when Coney Island started to get in, really into the skids, thanks to Robert Moses in the 1950s, they produced a movie to sort of show all the great things at Coney Island, and they featured her and her wine dance really prominently. And 50 years later, in the early 2000s, when Coney Island was trying to remount some of its masterful works in a way to gain attention to its history and sort of bring back its prominence, her act was one of the ones they decided to remount. What they didn't know is that Madame Terza was still alive, and she was living in Chicago, and she slapped them with a lawsuit as soon as they remounted her act. <laughs> and I think that's great, right? She had created this work of art that was so amazing that it was remembered 60 years later when she herself was already forgotten. No one knew who she was. But that art that she made, in part because she obviously loved her body, loved dancing, loved women... That inspired her, and she used that art to find jobs for other queer women. And I just love that. It's forgotten today. It's, it's not the leaves of grass. You know, it's not the bridge, but it's important. Yeah, so let's actually go to Coney Island now, because that was another place that was prominently featured in there. So just bring us to Coney Island in its heyday. What, what do we find there? Oh, gosh. Well, first we've got to find what its heyday is. Coney Island has been a spot for New Yorkers since the 1800s, when it was really a, an excursion place for the rich, because it was so fucking far away, right? You might take a boat there from Manhattan. It could take you a day to get there. Uh, and so there were these big resort palaces. And then as transportation gets better in the late 1800s, it becomes a place for all New Yorkers, particularly once the amusement park 
works open because, right, this is the time when homosexuality is being defined, but it's also the time when heterosexuality is being defined. And by that, I mean this idea that there was a sexuality that men and women had in common and that was something they might want to experience and, and share. Before that, you lived in this very gendered world. Women spent time with women. Men spent time with men. Amusement parks meant time you could spend with each other. And that changed everything for straight people and also for gay people. So Coney Island really hits its, its stride, I would say, in the late 1800s, 1890s. And by that point, we've already got bearded women performing there. We've already got male impersonators. We've got female impersonators. Uh, we've got stories of individuals going there. Walt Whitman loved to go there. You know, so we know that there is this history, but it really picks up in the early 1900s. By 1920, there's this incredible woman named Mabel Hampton, who's a black lesbian dancer from the South, moves up at a very young age, has a terrible experience. Uh, she lives with her uncle who rapes her. She runs away at the age of, I think, eight and ends up living in Jersey City. Eventually, she's working on her own. And right as she turns 17, I believe, New York City drops the fare to Coney Island. So it's only a nickel to go there. And suddenly, anyone can go. And she's one of the people who goes there and she gets a job. She starts dancing in the sideshow. And she says there are these oral histories done with her by the founders of the Lesbian History Archives. She was one of the early um, founders as well. Uh, they have these oral histories where she says, the making of me, it was that woman in Coney Island, the first out lesbian she ever met who taught her the word lesbian. Now she'd had sex with other women before this, but this was the moment where she suddenly understood who she was in a certain way. And Coney Island provided space for that because this woman saw her dancing in the sideshow and then waited for her after the rehearsal and said, why don't we go on a walk for the through the beach, which is this sort of lonesome area during the day. They could find some privacy, right? So it makes all of these things possible. And then throughout the 1920s, there are these bathhouses opening up there. And now they serve sort of civil functions. Uh, you couldn't wear a, bath, a bathing suit on the street back then, so you had to rent one. Also, most people didn't own one, so you would rent one from a bathing uh, pavilion. You might also go to one with your whole community. You know, they kind of had links to different ethnic neighborhoods. So you might go to the one where the Italians from the Lower East Side went. And so there were these big, really important places. And by the end of the 20s, they're really important for gay men, a couple in particular. Uh, in 1929, Variety hosts this all-male beauty pageant at the Washington Baths, and it turns into a giant flaming faggot fest, and they have no idea what to do. It's like 50 men, all of them are gay, no one expects it, they're wearing makeup, they're in full drag. Now, I can't pinpoint a lot of other gay men at the Washington Baths before 1929, but the fact that 50 of them showed up for a public show like this, in drag, wearing makeup, blowing each other kisses, suggests to me that they were comfortable in this space, that this space was their space. And in the Variety article they eventually wrote about it, they note that while all the sort of upper class people who were judging it, who were there from Manhattan to sort of just be in there for this one day had real issues with what was going on. They call them in floozies, terrible floozies. And they say it's about the sanctity of the family. The Coney Island women didn't care. They didn't notice, didn't blink. They liked the guys who were in makeup and in drag. And so that says to me, there was a whole world there that may not be remembered much today, but it was okay with a lot of things that you wouldn't expect to be okay in the 1920s. That was, there's so many things I want to talk about here, but, but one of the things that really struck me about today is today a lot of what we consider LGBT culture, we think of it as sort of like aligned with the upper class, you know? 
But in this period, it was the reverse. You know, the upper class were aligned with the moral crusaders and the eugenics-toting idiots and were terrible people. And it was the working class who were the defenders, who created safe spaces, who, frankly, didn't give a damn a lot of the time. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that alliance, because it's different than how we understand these issues today. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it's complicated, right? I don't want to make it sound like the working class was a, a unified paradise for queer people, uh, particularly different ethnic groups. It was very different. Um, but some of the things, the conditions that made it sort of more accepting for queer people was the working class in New York in a lot of subcultures were bachelor subcultures, mostly men, right? So you don't have a lot of family units. You don't have a lot of access to the correct kinds of sex, whether that's heterosexual sex inside a marriage, you know, or, or what have you. You have a lot more prostitution. You have a lot more same-sex sexual activity. You have a lot less privacy. So there's a lot less space to hide deviant genders or sexuality. So people who have a, an abnormal gender presentation, they're a lot more visible in working class neighborhoods. They might still get fucked with, and they, they did. You know, we have these reports, people, women saying, trans women saying, I was beaten, I was raped, I was robbed, but they also have a place. Whereas in upper class society, they don't have as much of a place. You can use your money to sort of force a place. You can buy some protection kind of with money, but you don't have the space in the same way. And there's this really interesting understanding of sexuality and gender that's different in this period among the upper class, some people in the upper class and some people in the, the working class. Uh, the working class sees a manly man who wants to do all the things men do, who maybe has sex with a trans woman as normal, right? hasn't done anything odd. He's had sex with someone who presents as a woman. Uh, he is a man. And that person back then they probably thought was intersex, not just transgender, regardless of what their body was actually like. So in some senses, he's having sex with a woman. It's totally acceptable in certain ways. It's not the best thing, but it didn't define him as a different kind of person necessarily. The upper class looked at that same interaction, that same couple, and they said to themselves, well, that trans woman is totally normal, right? In a certain sense, her body is actually in part female and she wants to be female and she wants to date manly men. She's the normal one in that relationship. But the person whose gender identity is masculine and their body is masculine, who wants to have sex with this person who is not a real woman is the freak. So it's, it's a really different understanding of how these relationships work. Someone is being stigmatized in both cases to different degrees. Uh, and someone is okay, but it's a very different understanding of which person is the correct one and which person is the stigmatized one. And both of those understandings exist at the same time. Right now, we think of sexuality in kind of one way. We have this idea of heterosexuality and homosexuality, and we're sort of figuring out what trans and cis mean, but you know, we kind of think we know what it is. But back then, there were these really sort of different active paradigms for understanding gender and sexuality that were fighting with each other. Hey, Ian. Hey, Hansa. How are you? I'm good. Time for a moment to take a side and have a breather from the conversation and talk about how people can support the We Croak podcast so that we know to keep calling up cool writers and inviting them on. You know, one of the best ways to go about doing it is to visit our Patreon page. We have a wonderful We Croak Patreon page. We have all the podcast episodes listed up there if you want to check out our growing back catalog. And if you're interested in wanting to support us financially, you know, we'd love to have you uh, do so. We um, have a, a ton of really cool rewards. We have cool mugs. And if enough of you continue to get on board, 
we'll also have some really awesome tote bags. Yeah, and the other thing you can do is subscribe and tell your friends, of course. And Ian, you said you had a favorite quote you wanted to read today from the We Croak app. My favorite quote of all time is by Charles Beard, and it is, When it is dark enough, you can see the stars. Aww. Fun fact, it was the quote I put in my high school yearbook. And with uh, on that note, let's uh, get back to the conversation at hand. So just guess for me about these women from Coney Island at the male beauty contest who are laughing with all the drag queens and the people dressed up. Like, imagine being in their head. Who were they? Why were they so cool with this? Like, how did that happen? Well... A big part of it, and I, I thankfully don't have to imagine too hard because I, I have some of these women, oral histories that they gave, interviews that they gave. A lot of them sort of saw it as a weird thing, right? They were like, these men are weird. There's no getting around it. Uh, they might call them fags, you know? But in a joking way, they were odd the, but benign. Uh, at the same time that this is uh, happening, there's this song that gets written called Masculine Women, Feminine Men. And it's all about how today you can't tell men and women apart. It's so weird. It's so kooky. But the song is actually, each example is, you know, your Aunt Flo, who's actually, you know, wearing a really tight haircut. Or your Uncle Phil, who's dressing in a way that is, like, not typically masculine. Maybe he's wearing perfume, I think, in the lyrics. And, the, and about royalty and all these familiar figures, right? So it puts gender deviation and sexual deviation as this kind of, like, weird thing, but weird thing within the family, right? That's kind of how I think a lot of these people thought of it. They were like, ah, it's not for me. I might laugh at that person. And under the right set of circumstances, I might even become violent towards them because it's definitely not the perfect existence, but it's not a terrible thing and it doesn't necessarily mean they're completely different from you or I. In fact, some of these women, what's really interesting in the, in the pre-1950 kind of world, are having sex with these men who are actually working as sex workers with other men. And they know what's going on and they're just sort of like, well, it's his job. Uh, it's what he does, you know? And it doesn't affect who he is. He wants me. So there's nothing fake between us. Yeah, like, a, a whatever, I had a headache. <laughs> okay. You know, another part I really liked about the Coney Island section was you were able to find all these, especially, like, African-American women performers. And it was such a wild, like, performance burlesque culture that I almost was seeing, like, the roots of drag culture, even though it was women doing it. And all these different, these are, of course, the margins of the margins, but it was also, like, flamboyant, fun, dancing. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, drag, particularly in, like, the late Victorian, early progressive era, what we would call drag, they wouldn't have used that term back then. It would have been male impersonation or female impersonation. But it was hot. I mean, it was a major art form. It existed everywhere. Uh, Julian Eltinge, who is not a Brooklyn-based queen, male, a female impersonator, uh, he's Manhattan-based. He had his own magazine of women's beauty tips. Um, he was incredibly famous. I mean, some of these people made it to the highest levels of society, and some of them were performing in places that were so run down and raggedy, they didn't even have names. It was, it was everywhere. And the sideshow was this sort of incredible world that was really problematic in many ways, right? A lot of the early sideshow performers that I talk about were kidnapped or sold to circuses because they were intersex in a different way, bearded women, uh, what were called 
called half and halves, which were people who showed signs of both sexes, you know, what we might call a hermaphrodite. And often people who were just so off in their gender, women who were so mannish, men who were so feminine, that people assumed they were intersex in certain ways. All of those people found work in the sideshow to a degree where they couldn't find it anywhere else. Mabel Hampton, the woman who I mentioned earlier, the black lesbian dancer, says at one point on these oral history tapes, she didn't even like dancing that much. It was just a job she could have as a black lesbian with a limited education in New York City in the 1920s. She said all of her friends either worked in the theater, the sideshow, or the factories. And they were all queer. So it provided this incredible space. And because it was a space where heterosexuals were going to date, it was already sexualized. Sexualized in a way that wasn't specific to queer people, so it didn't get cracked down on in a queer-specific way. So you've got these heterosexuals going there in big groups of women and men to try to find each other and date each other. You've got people going on dates. You have whole families going there. You've got gendered weirdness already performing. Everything from burlesque that you're supposed to stare at and ogle to bearded women and half and halves. So there's already something about the space that's sort of sexually open and free and queer, you know? No, it's not gay. It's not straight. It's, it's queer space. And that's incredible. And it lasts basically until 1950. Uh, Robert Moses comes in. He hates Coney Island. He destroys it. I mean, he really does come in and purposely tear it apart. And by the end of the 1950s, I have all these uh, gay men and lesbians who at that point think of themselves as gay men and lesbians, and they say, you, you couldn't go to Coney Island anymore. It used to be a space for us, but now you wouldn't feel safe there. Uh, and I talked to a bunch of Stonewall vets who said to me that it, it, by the 60s, you wouldn't even think about it. They were like, we would go in groups wearing makeup, you know, to scare out the straight people. And we would go to the movies. We'd go to museums. We'd go to the Bronx. You wouldn't go to Coney Island. Wasn't safe there. Wow. Robert Moses was literally the worst. <laughs> I often imagine if he had loved public transportation instead of cars, what city would we live in today? Oh, uh, yeah. So, okay, let's let's talk about the, the end times, this sort of post-war period mm -hmm. where the Robert Moseses and the moral reformers really got their, the quote-unquote moral reformers, their act together, and basically extinguished what was, at this point, a over 100 years running subculture with its own values, its own literature, its own stuff, and basically made it so that most people today, unless they've, you know, already gotten their hands on a copy of your book have never even heard of. Yeah, it's, it's a real tragedy. Um, and it, it happens, the assaults are so many and from so many different directions, it's, it's hard to describe. Robert Moses comes in and he wants to make the city really accessible for cars so that people from the suburbs can come in and work. And to do that, he needs to build super highways, and he runs them right around Brooklyn. If you look at a map of Brooklyn today, you'll see this ring of roads that cuts off the entire waterfront. And that, that kills all of these jobs. That kills Coney Island. It kills these neighborhoods. Sometimes he runs the roads right through important queer neighborhoods. He also does new public housing on Sand Street that kills Sand Street. Uh, he does all of this stuff that just cuts the legs out from Brooklyn economically. It's not aimed at queer people, but it cuts the legs out of the waterfront economy, and that hurts queer people because queer people are poor. And when you attack poor communities, you're attacking queer people. So that's happening on one level. Then the city as a whole is going through this real economic downturn. You've got suburbanization, you've got stagflation, you've got people moving out, uh, you've got white flight. All of that is creating incredible stress on the city. It's changing the communities, it's changing the people, it's changing the 
services, the structures, everything. So that's assaulting the queer communities. Then you have the specifically queer assaults, right? So you've got psychology, which is now saying that sort of latent homosexuality is at the root of every problem you can possibly imagine. You've got the government using that as a way, uh, McCarthy, right? He uses communism and queerness as a way to attack subversives. And queerness is perfect because you can't prove it. You have this really interesting part about Brooklyn College and some communist queer professors that were there Mm -hmm. and how they got caught up in the Red Scare. Yeah. Yeah, in an early part of the Red Scare, before the Red Scare uh, gets associated with Joseph McCarthy, McCarthy, there's this organization called the Rap Coderre Committee in New York. Uh, They're active, I think, 1939, 1940, and they really are the ones that Joseph McCarthy patents all of his work after. They go after sexual subversives and communists. They have these secret tribunals. They get this closeted gay man at Brooklyn College in a secret tribunal to name all of these other men. Then they force him to name them publicly. That includes a number of other gay men who then are fired from their jobs. Many, many, many decades later, the city makes restitution, but by then they're all dead. Many of them are actually active in the Communist Party, and they then get thrown out of the Communist Party because the Communist Party post-World War II also kicks out all the homosexuals. David McKelvey White is the one that I follow quite a bit, and eventually he's, he's kicked out by everyone, and he kills himself in, like, 1945. So all of this is happening. So you've got the government coming in. The government makes so many people afraid that the entertainment industry starts cracking down on homosexuals, uh, not just in movies or big prominent places, but I have a, a woman who works as a male impersonator at Coney Island in the 50s says, the stage boys in like a variety theater would be grilled about whether they were communists or homosexuals, because if they were, everyone could be shut down. Right? So you've got that angle coming at it, too. You have these psychologists who believe that you have to teach homosexuals that they are unhappy and getting less out of life than other people. That's a direct quote from a psychologist in the 50s in order to teach them how to heal themselves. So they're actively making them miserable. Uh, you get all of these laws either being put in place or being enforced more than they ever have been before, before to arrest homosexuals, to arrest people who are dressed the wrong way. All of these forces, they're all coming in at once. And because there was that economic downturn that is separate from Robert Moses, but is accelerated in Brooklyn by Robert Moses, as all of that negative imagery is coming in, everything that was there before that could have counteracted it that was positive is destroyed. And so there's nothing else, right? There's no other story anymore. That remaining story sort of creeps away. The mixed spaces all disappear. Uh, Brooklyn Heights remains the sort of queerest and eventually the gayest, but it's, it's totally sub It's a hidden community that even gay people in Manhattan didn't know about. Now, this, of course, makes space, right? In the late 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, these spaces become inhabited by early new queer pioneers who don't know that there's this hundred years worth of history that has come before them, and they make these incredible spaces. So you get the Starlight Lounge in Crown Heights, which becomes an incredibly important black gay bar. You get, quote-unquote, Dyke Slope in the 80s and 90s, and eventually the lesbian herstory archives moves to Park Slope. You get all of this stuff that comes into this, like, empty space. But the process of making that empty space is one of just of horror, you know? So many people's lives were lost or ruined or they left the city, they moved to safer places, they commit suicide, they get lost in drugs and alcohol, they get arrested. Um, it's, a, it's a hard story. Yeah, and, you know, we lost something important. You know, I think what I got from your book was, you know, this was a subculture. It had its own set of characters, wildly different, coming from different places and different subcultures over a 100-year period. But it was, it was special, it was particular to the waterfronts, to Brooklyn, and uh, really important historically, just because it inspired some of the greatest American art, period. 
in Walt Whitman. I think Carmen Melville, honestly, uh, as oh, yeah. well Nathaniel as Nathaniel Hawthorne. I'll Nathaniel throw him Hawthorne in there too. Hawthorne and um, Hart Crane, and then poof, one fifteen-year period, just the right mix of you know economic hand uh, economic handicapping mm-hmm. and um, persecution, and it's gone, and we don't really get to have it back. I mean, we can look at the old literature and love, you know, Leaves of Grass. We can imagine what it was like, maybe see some of the roots of performance culture and vaudeville and burlesque and imagine it. But it's it's mostly gone. You know, the queer life in Brooklyn today is wonderful, but these aren't its roots. It's coming out of Manhattan or other places. And I, I don't know, is, is, that, is that correct? Or what is left besides that? Is there anything? I mean, there's definitely some things left. Uh, Brooklyn Heights in particular, if you look at it, has this really interesting history. Um, one of the things that happens, so along with this contraction and this sadness that's happening in, in Brooklyn, part of the reason that happens is because America is being told that there are these two things, homosexuals and heterosexuals. And you always want to be on the, the right side of that line, right? So you've got to police yourself and everyone around you really greatly to understand, are you a homosexual? Are you a heterosexual? These spaces that I talked about in Brooklyn, many of them were queer in the sense that they were not homosexual or heterosexual. They were mixed spaces where people didn't understand things in that way. So in the same moment where those spaces are disappearing, those people do have to go somewhere. And so you get these concentrated spots. Suddenly you have post-war, around the you know, World War II period, all of these actual gay bars and lesbian bars opening up in the city. Most of them in Greenwich Village, where you have the sort of most settled queer history. So... While all of this stuff is falling apart, I often visualize it as a, as a contraction. If you put your hand out flat with all your fingers facing, and then you pull them slowly in to form a fist, that's what's happening, right? These fingers, these skinny little weird bits that are diverse and they're unconcentrated and they're in all different places sort of contract together and they make a fist in Greenwich Village, which eventually becomes the raised fist of Stonewall, right? So we see what is today in part is the sort of concentration of what had been in Brooklyn and what had been in other places. It comes together and it forms a knot. But in some places like Brooklyn Heights, there actually are threads that remain from this older history. Uh, One of my favorite stories is that there's a bar that opens there called the Heights Supper Club. It opens in 1950. I think around 1954 it becomes a gay bar because there's a little note in the paper where they say uh, the new owner will continue to serve people in the manner they have become accustomed to. And it's sort of like a wink, wink, nod, nod in the Brooklyn press. And the Brooklyn press actually keeps up with the gay neighborhood. Uh, In the 1960s, 61, 62, there are letters, people complaining. A guy writes in and he complains about gay men soliciting other men on the Brooklyn Heights promenade. And all of these other residents write back and are basically like, fuck off. They were here before you. They're awesome. We don't have a problem with our gays. And we have this established gay history. This goes on for about two years. And then the Heights Supper Club gets raided and it gets shut down by the state liquor authority. And the New York Times writes this huge article about areas of the city with growing homosexual populations. And even though it's triggered by this bar in Brooklyn being shut down, they don't mention any Brooklyn neighborhoods. All the neighborhoods they talk about are in Manhattan. And the Brooklyn Heights Press actually responds. They write this tiny, unsourced article. It's just like a paragraph from the editors saying, look, whether you like them or hate them, we can all agree that there is an established homosexual presence here in the Heights. But that's the last time they ever mentioned the community. So for the two years before that, there'd been letters raging back and forth. But after that, no one talks about it. And some new bars open up, Danny's on Montague Street. There's a couple others. There are some people who remain, uh, Willard Moss, 
uh, and his wife, uh, Marie Menken, they stay and they're really important. Oliver Smith, Truman Capote, there's, there are some people and it's all in the Heights, but it's sub rosa, it's hidden, it's not talked about. By the time Stonewall happens, when I talked to the Stonewall queens, they were like, yeah, you heard about the promenade and you heard of the St. George Hotel, but you didn't really know why. They just were things gay people talked about and you went there once to see what it was and then you left because it wasn't cool. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing about your book. And now that we've talked about it for, you know, an hour, what do you think, if you could save one piece of this culture, like resurrect it from history, what would it be? Okay, so I'm, this is a really nerdy answer. It's the historian's nerdy answer, which is uh, throughout this book, from the very beginning, starting with Walt Women all the way up to the end, basically at some point... 75, 90% of my characters destroy their memoirs. They destroy their letters. They burn their diaries. Or they don't have someone to inherit them, and their mother inherits them, and she burns them. And, and it's just this wreckage. Like, I wish those recountants by queer people themselves had been preserved more. That's the thing that I'm like, okay, yes, we lost so much and these people couldn't live their authentic lives maybe in some ways, but I wish that we at least had the letters where they wrote about it because in the cases where we do, it tells us so much. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I have to admit, reading your book, it sometimes felt like medieval history in the t- way that you had to pick together, like just from these tiny sources and tiny pieces and extrapolate and it's true, this is very recent history, but because of the shame and the this and that, so much of it got destroyed. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us. Once again, the book is When Brooklyn Was Queer. I think it's really important, you know, just because these were lives, you know, 100 years of cultural history. And Hugh here was good enough to look into it for us. And it's, you know, a meditation, at least for me, about... You know, how quickly and how fully all this appears sometimes, you know? It's just, this was here, it was seemed like it would go on forever, it was people's culture, and then it was gone. Yeah. And there's something really profound about that, um, also beautiful to, to look into it, and a really good reason to revisit, you know, Leaves of Grass or some of these other pieces of literature, which of course are still the best. Yeah, oh, incredible. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I mean, the, the, the last thing I, I would say is that I've cataloged a world that disappeared in a certain way. And what's amazing is that I am living in a world where it is not just reappearing, but there's a whole new culture. And there's people like you in Brooklyn who want this history and want a future. You know, we want it all now. And I think that now is the time to sort of make that happen. And I hope that if people like this book, they go out and do their own research because I started from a place of near total ignorance. Like that was what propelled me forward. So I know that there is more to discover about queer Brooklyn, but there's also more to discover about queer everywhere. So... If you're listening, pick up the book, but then put the book down and go explore your own history because I really want to read it myself. Yeah, and one more thing I wanted to say about your book, just, you know, these were obviously, especially at the time, very marginal groups. And you paint such a beautiful picture of, you know, how the search for, you know, sex was also the search for longing, the search for love. They did it the best way they could. They created such beauty in art and performance and sort of a more empathetic or like a philosophy of freedom that was just so different from, you know, the sort of downer culture that prevailed at the time. (laughs) And it was special. And it makes me think of what other subcultures that were marginal around the world deserve this treatment. So if you're listening to this and you know of one, we want to read your book. Yeah, get on it. Stop slacking. (laughs) 
<laughs> so thank you so much again. Uh, when Brooklyn was queer, Hugh Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode of season two of the We Croak podcast. We're going to have new episodes for you every week, and we can't wait for you to hear them. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, be sure to check out Hugh Ryan's book, which comes out today.